0: Hi, my name's Henry. By the way, my mom
1: is working for Birth Monopoly.
2: I have a secret that I can't tell anybody. What I know about Birth Monopoly is not very much. This is Birth Allowed Radio with Kristen Piscucci. Today we are talking about a difficult and sensitive subject, stillbirth, specifically at home. Stillbirth is something that occurs in all settings and with all provider types. And black women are two to three times more likely to have a stillborn baby, even after controlling for socioeconomic factors like income, education, and environmental factors. Although there may be the perception that hospitals provide good support because there are professionals like social workers, clergy, and nurses integrated into the system, the reality is the support someone actually gets is hit or miss. It might be amazing or it might be terrible. It's not standardized and it's not guaranteed. Frankly, all providers are ill-equipped to handle loss. When a stillbirth occurs at home, it is up to the midwife and larger community to support the parents and people may fall short on this for various reasons. With us for this discussion is Ada Johnson and her midwife, Sarah Butterfly. Ada experienced a stillbirth attended by Sarah in 2015 and they have maintained a unique and close relationship. Ada is the parent of Button, who was stillborn in January 2015, and Simon, a rainbow baby born in August of 2016. She has done community health education, birth work, abortion support, and public health work for the last 15 years, attending over 100 births as a student midwife, midwifery assist, and full-spectrum doula. Ada has, for now, stepped away from her midwifery work in order to focus on supporting bereaved parents. She currently facilitates an infant and pregnancy loss support group, works as a bereavement doula, assists with rituals and ceremony after loss, provides community education and provider support around infant loss, and is working to start a nonprofit to support this work, plus some new and exciting projects. Sarah Butterfly is a certified professional midwife who integrates harm reduction, trauma-informed care, and client autonomy into her practice. She's currently researching the gap between trauma-informed care theory and practice implementation within midwifery. She's also a parent to some wonderful adult children, one of whom is pregnant with her first grandbaby. She lives with her partner in Providence, Rhode Island, although they are returning to the desert this summer. I'm grateful to you both for being here to talk about something people are often very uncomfortable talking about, And I hope this is helpful to both lost parents and the people around them. So thank you both for being here to talk about something that I know a lot of people are uncomfortable, uncomfortable about and um, don't know how to talk about. I hope that with this show, maybe we can help people figure that out a little bit. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Kristen. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Ada, let's start with you. Can we talk about your pregnancy a little bit and what happened on the day of your baby's birth? So my pregnancy, I had a pretty, I was, I had a very happy
0: pregnancy and clinically it was, I was in, I was doing, I did well during my pregnancy. I was going to say I'm healthy, but what, what does that mean? I, um, I had a nice pregnancy, which is funny. I also gained a lot of weight during my pregnancy. So it was hard and I, um, yeah, it was hard and challenging physically, but I was pretty, um, pretty joyous. I'm not someone who experiences a lot of joy in my life, and it was a really wonderful time for me, that pregnancy. And clinically, everything was went really well. I had more tests than I expected that I would have. I don't know. Maybe because I was concerned. Maybe. I don't know why. Except for that I gained a lot of weight, so I was nervous. So I had, I had ultrasounds and, and an advanced ultrasound. I guess I'll just say now that my pregnancy went well, and after, which we'll, I'll talk more about my birth story, and the loss of Button, who my baby's name is Button, I found out later after an autopsy that she had contracted an infection that is the reason for her loss. I just say that at, to say she would have died if she was born in the hospital or anywhere. She would have died before birth or during birth, if not shortly after. And I did a lot of research on the infection, and we also talked to a perinatologist and um, that seems to be true for everyone who has, has this infection. And it's not a te- a, something that's ever tested for or anything, so just trying to emphasize that I had really good clinical care. One of the reasons I think to talk about stillbirth at home is because there's really myths on both sides. Like there's this myth in the home birth world that um, all home births are safe births, and that's not true. But there's also this myth that stillbirth happens because of home birth, right? So when I tell my story of loss, I usually pretty quickly, if I say a birth at home, I really quickly am like, my baby died for this reason. She did not die because of his home birth. So I just want to point out those myths. So that was that was my pregnancy, and I I I went into labor like early in the evening. I was full term, actually. Sarah, I don't know, was I? Thirty-nine you know? weeks. Okay, I was thirty-nine weeks, <laughs> um, and I went into labor. It was. I remember that it was like late afternoon, early evening. I remember that my partner was there, and I don't know if she was there because I called her and told her I was in labor, or if she just happened to have come home from work early. I don't know. But to speed through this part I basically my early labor was pretty fast and I have really special memories of being in early labor and you know yeah it being hard and all the things but also pretty special in my home with my amazing partner and with my amazing midwife and those are nice memories. Everything was going well until I started pushing and then you know there's a thing about birth and time where, where who knows what, I don't know, you know, time just becomes this other world, which I've learned is also true with death. I recently was also at my, my father just died and I was there for the end of his life and I remembered being there like, oh, right, time is so similar with birth and death and also so different and we had this combination of the weirdness of birth time and the weirdness of death time. So I'm saying that to say that my memory is pretty unclear, but also things things started to get All all I can remember is something was wrong. Right. But, um, but soon about, about when I started to push and, and, you know, there's this thing here that I really trust Sarah. I've been to a lot of births with her. I think she's an amazing midwife. I like deeply in my body was like, uh Oh, there's a problem and it's going to be okay. You know, I felt like so safe and like certain because we had handled a lot of births together.
2: And how did you know there was a problem? Was that, did she indicate there was a problem or you could feel there was a problem? Well, so my midwife friend was also present. So what was going on is I didn't hear heartbeat.
0: She did not let on in any way that anything was wrong. But since you asked that question, I will say that um, at that point, there was an assist there also who I had asked not to be there um, unless I needed her because Sarah lived right across the street from me. <laughs> so it was really easy for she was just at Sarah's house. So she was there. And I will say as things progressed, there was still a problem. And I, I didn't really have any fear. I was just like, oh, we got to get this baby out, you know. I could feel the fear of the assist. I could really feel it. And I don't, know, it, I don't know if it's exactly what she said, it was the feeling, but also the way she was responding to Sarah or not responding to Sarah, right? Like Sarah mm-hmm. and I have worked together so much that we can like, like at a birth, we can kind of like hear each other without words. And, and I could tell that that wasn't happening with the assist. That wasn't a good feeling, which I say that to, to um, point it out to other health workers, to other birth workers. Like, I think it's so important to do our own shadow work or to do our own work to not let people feel that. <laughs> Yeah, basically, it was just very clear to me that I had to get the baby out from what Sarah was, you know, like Sarah would tell her to help me get in a certain position. And I would be like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. Move this way. You know, like, I know where we're going next. So I can just speed that up because it was slow and hard and the EMT had been called and so had this amazing nurse midwife. And so she was called and the EMT were called and they were there. The EMT actually showed up as soon as Button was born. Right before, before, okay, well, I didn't, don't remember them until, but so they showed up a little before, but I, um, you know, she wasn't doing any work, she wasn't helping be born, her heart stopped beating, and by then I was pretty scared, you know, I was, I was in shock, I was still doing the things that I needed to do, but I, um, so there wasn't a lot of oxytocin, there wasn't a lot of um, things that make birth happen the quickest, and she's a big baby, a really big baby, which I think, you know, I make, I make big babies, I, I that's fine, but without her help, it was, that was hard. So it was a slow process, and I think some part of me knew that she wasn't alive, but she was born. Eventually, she came out, and I got to hold her, and my, my partner, Caroline, got to hold her, and we got to sing to her, and, and in my head, oh, no, the baby's born. There's a problem. She'll go to the hospital, and she'll be okay. You know, like Sarah will resuscitate her. She'll be okay. Okay, that didn't happen, but still, she'll go to the hospital, and she'll be okay. So, well, Caroline followed the EMT with the baby into the other room to do further resuscitation, and I, um, I was in shock. So, so that happened, and then, and then I hemorrhaged. I massively hemorrhaged, and I had to, and so I had Sarah here and this amazing nurse midwife here with me, holding the space beautifully and really, you know, I was in my home, and I, I know some part of me knew it was going on, but I, but I didn't. I really just thought she goes, she'll go to Children's Hospital, she'll come back, she'll be okay. Caroline went with her. Oh, I was trying to say that hemorrhage like I had to refuse to transfer because she was being sent to the children's hospital and I knew I would be sent to a different hospital and I wanted to be with her as soon as I could because I wanted to breastfeed and whatever, right? Support her because she just was having to have medical care. So I had to, you know, sign papers and refuse the EMT and like tell Sarah and the nurse midwife over and over that, I mean, not over and over. I don't even think they asked me, but you know, like we, they held the space for me really beautiful to be like, you're not going to do that. So we're gonna support you to stay here. So I got an IV, and they just, they just watched me and made sure, <laughs> made sure that I could get back up, get my feet on the ground to get to the hospital see my baby. Which I was just like, I have to do that right now. I have to do that right now. And it took took some hours, mm-hmm. but um, but so they they just made sure that that could happen, which I really am so thankful for.
2: That's really powerful, and I didn't know that about your story, that you were essentially like, I'm gonna forego my own medical care to stay with my baby. Yeah. That's interesting because that's totally what happened. But in my head,
0: I knew I was okay. I knew I'd be okay. I knew that, you know, what, what I mean, actually I'm massively hemorrhaged, so I don't know why I knew that, but <laughs> for some reason I was like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. Just, you know, this yeah. thing
1: happened.
2: Yeah. You know. Do you mind if I ask Sarah what your perspective was at that point?
1: What my perspective was?
2: Well, I mean, I knew that
1: what we didn't have at the house was an operating room or blood products everything else we had. So we had the medications um, that they would be administering in the hospital um, and we had the training and the skills. So I felt like as long as the bleeding was controlled and then, you know, Ada was able to get fluids and back on her feet, if she didn't want to transfer for blood transfusion, then there wasn't a bigger gap than that. Um, But it did, it took, you know, both, both of the midwives that were there and, you know, quite a bit of medication and help and yeah, IV fluids, but, but I wasn't concerned about, I wasn't concerned about Ada being okay, because she spoke that she was going to be okay. She said, I'm going to get to Caroline, I'm going to get to my baby. I, I felt really confident in that.
2: Yeah. What happened after that, Ada?
0: So one thing that happened is I passed out a lot. So I have a, <laughs> and my memory is again, besides the, the difference of, you know, the time thing and the shock also, I was, There's that, but I, what I know is that Caroline called from the hospital and told me that Button had died. I remember that conversation mostly. What I remember about that conversation is being worried about Caroline, which is interesting because I, I don't really remember being like really recognizing yet. Oh yeah, you just told me that Button is dead. I remember just being so worried about her and like oh I need now I need to get Caroline to Caroline immediately. (laughs) Yeah, that's the next thing I remember is she called and said then. Once I could get on my feet, which I think still took a while. A um, couple more hours after that. Yep. A couple more hours. I should say that the mid- that the assistant, the assist went with Caroline to the hospital. So she was there with her. Okay. okay. I'm thankful for it. So once I got ready, Sarah and I, uh, Sarah, I guess, took me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so we went into this room where Caroline was with Button. holding. She was holding her on the couch. And you know she had been there, I think she says in total she was there eleven hours. I believe that I might that member might make it up, but she was there you know the a long time and loved it. she she like took a nap with button and got to really just spend time with her and the um the support team there was really amazing and um had they had already when I got there, they had already bathed her and put her in some atrocious pink clothes, but you know they had um yeah, they had done that, and so when I got there, we just spent a lot of time with her and sang to her and and got to really hold her her precious body and love her. And there was a nurse there who um, who was specialized and you know this is what she did. I always call her the dead baby nurse, but that's maybe not um, appropriate.
1: <laughs> I think it's what her job is.
0: Yeah, She's wonderful. I really um, have a lot of respect for that work. But she came in and she took photographs and she. Took clippings of buttons hair and um, she encouraged us to do footprints which we, we didn't we didn't want to do at the time which I, I now regret not I don't think that would have meant much to us but to give to the family to like our parents and stuff. Yeah, we just we just spent lots of time there with her and it was really special. And then, you know, this really hard thing is that you have to leave. Yeah, you have to leave. We just I don't actually remember yeah we handed her we handed her to that nurse, which I was really happy to get her to, to hand her to someone who I knew respected her and cared about her oh that was hard and so then the next part is we walked out of that room into a room full of police officers who needed to interrogate us because it was a home birth and they needed to make sure I think that the language was that there was no foul play so I don't remember this but there was a long time of Caroline and I sitting in the room right after we had left seen our baby for the last time sitting in the room with a bunch of cops answering questions about what happened? I don't even know what. <laughs> so that was intense. And then they also they told us while we were there that they would be coming to our house to to look around to make sure that there wasn't any signs of violence, and also to get the placenta. But they came as soon as within within I don't know, but shortly after we went home, they showed up, and we met them at the door with the placenta, and they they did it. They didn't come in, which was great. That was a big part of the story. Well, how were they? Well. They were cops. I don't, I don't know how they were. <laughs> I know that I was angry that I had to be speaking to them and I was in shock and I was, you know, I was currently like sitting in a lot of blood. Like I was, I can't, I can't answer how they were. I also don't, I
2: yeah. think they were are respectful. I think that as respectful as possible in that situation. So what was it like for you emotionally after that, for over the next, I guess, few days and weeks? So I think we, I oscillated a lot between
0: no, it was just always really sad, right? Like always sad and miserable. Sometimes a little numb, but not. Yeah, I guess just really sad. I um, I couldn't, I couldn't move a lot. I was in a lot of, I had, I had hemorrhaged massively. I had, Sarah had had to do an episiotomy. Wow, that's, also that's had, unusual. It is unusual. Yeah, I'm like, I don't, yeah, I can't tell if I should say it without being like, that never happened. One of two. Yeah, <laughs> I've ever.
2: <laughs> One of two ever. Yeah, I had seen my first episiotomy, actually, at the last birth I had been to, oddly. I guess I'm asking about how it unfolded for you, from the perspective of, for someone listening, you know, who maybe can relate to this, to hear what it was like for someone else, how their grief changed, maybe, how things evolved for you. So, immediately afterwards, Caroline and I had an amazing amount of support.
0: We really were able to stay home. I don't I, my, my timeline is completely it's always pretty messed up, but we're around this, of course, really messed up. But I think for like a month, I think Caroline, Caroline's work, Caroline's made the, the work that she had, was amazing, and she was able to take off I don't remember how long, but quite a bit of time, and we had a lot of support, financial support and just support in all the ways from, from community, um, which I can talk about that more, but because of that, we were able to just be home and be with our grief. I was pretty physically incapable. So really, we had this room in our house that was attached to the bathroom, which is really where we were. We spent that however many weeks it was. I think it was about a month. Is that a cat in the background? Oh, yeah. Sorry.
1: That's Sasha. Yeah. Okay. Sasha wants her breakfast.
0: So, Caroline and I had a had a room that was attached to a bathroom that was not usually the room that we we used, but we really moved into that room. And um and it was useful for me because I was taking a lot of baths and just like I couldn't. The walk to the bathroom would have been really hard for me. I, I had an allergy. I had an allergic I believe it was an allergic reaction to Cybertech. And so I had a lot going on in addition to all the other healing. So just to say we were able to be in that room and it really was like a sanctuary. It was really like we had we have a lot of Caroline and I have a really large community that was just so caring and so supportive. And so we had like our room was just filled, it was like the room, the bedroom was an altar to button. We had beautiful flowers and wonderful smelling things and photographs of pregnancy. And just, it was really um, a powerful space that we were able to, to inhabit. And I really literally didn't leave that room <laughs> for, um, I don't know what I think is a month. And and Caroline didn't much either, <laughs> especially, you know, before she went back to work. So so what we did is we just were in there and we were grieving and we like because we didn't because we had so we had the privilege to not work and to be home and we had had a lot of support financially from family and friends and specifically in arizona the midwife community really showed up for me i also got a lot of support from some of the midwives that i knew really well and some that i didn't so that was really special and um and powerful and we had food we were fed way longer than it was necessary. We had a mill train and not just a mill train, a mill train plus snacks, plus, you know, like all meals throughout the day. And Sarah lived across the street and so was bringing us food all the time. And my dear friend is an herbalist and she showed up pretty, pretty immediately. And, and Caroline and I wanted a lot of space. We had a lot, our, both of our moms wanted to come immediately. And we had a lot of friends who were like, I will be there right now. But we just really wanted the space except I knew some things like that. I could never see breast milk. I knew if I saw the breast milk, I would not be okay. So my friend, within days, my friend who is an herbalist showed up and helped me administer really great herbs for my nervous system and for my healing. And most importantly, I never saw breast milk because of those herbs. And I, I, at the time, I I remember feeling like I will not, I won't live through this if I see one drop of breast milk. Everyone doesn't have that feeling, but it's just I'm glad to get this in here that. I hear a lot of breathing parents say that their care doesn't really address the issue of breast milk very well. So there are options and there are resources to to handle it. <laughs> um, and people pump and donate milk and people do lots of great things. And for some people, it's not a big deal. They're, they want to see it, but I knew that I wouldn't be okay. So so my friend who was an herbalist came and, and just supported us and made us really amazing nutritional food and and smoothies and I just was really well cared for. And Caroline and I have this really special community um, that we've cultivated over our adult life that really prioritizes self like care, caring for each other and like creating alternatives outside of the system for how to, how to take care of each other. And so we had that and, and a lot of our, most of our friends didn't live in Arizona, but we had that as much as possible. We had it long distance and we had, we had really called on our community to, um, to recognize button Like we had a ritual that we did on our own, but we like called people in and asked them to like, at this time on this day, do this, please do this ceremony with us. Like we really wanted space, but we also really wanted to know that our family and our community, you know, our family and our extended family was, our chosen family was there with us. And we had that. And I I believe that that's so much of why we're both okay, is that that immediate support, I just think is so crucial to the long-term healing. We were really, really privileged to have that. I mean, we cultivated this community, but just that we had this and that we had people that could give us money. So I feel like it's a very unique, privileged situation that we're in. And I think that, like, there's so many lessons from from that, that midwives and doulas and, and larger community can provide, help people seek out on their own, you know, like help people cultivate from the community that they already have, as well as to offer that support. So, yeah, that's what we did. We grieved and we researched loss and read books about loss and prayed, um, in our way, to Button and, um, and created Ritual and had this really amazing experience with this wonderful Cordera that we knew in Arizona who came and, and led this ceremony where um, she led Olympia, so like a cleansing of her home, but she also she opened the space for us to communicate with Button. And that's a powerful story that I won't go into, but I just that's what we did is we figured out how to like live the rest of our lives, parenting you know, with empty arms and parenting this baby at the same time, which is just an extraordinary
2: privilege that we were able to have. And I, yeah. Well, it's time for a break. We'll come back in a minute and broaden the conversation. I think to talk about how this applies, I think to other people what lessons other people can take from your experience. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. We'll be right back. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LP FM Lexington, Lexington community radio. And this is birth aloud with Kristen Piscucci. So over the break, Ada and Sarah, you were talking a lot about how the community stepped up to support you. And can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Just basically recapping what we just said, which was, you know, off record. Yeah. So,
0: I mean, the biggest thing is that Carolyn and I didn't have to do anything. All the practical life stuff was pushed out of the way and we got to just grieve our baby. You know, I know that I personally spend a lot of time like keening and feeling and, and both Caroline and I and crying and just like being able to really go there with our grief and um, reading other stories of, of people's loss and people's experiences and the way that, that people deal with it. You know, we just didn't have to do anything. So we were able, we had the, the resources that we were able to just grieve. And perhaps I said this before the break, but I think that that is, I think that's how we both know that we're okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's how
0: we know that that we're okay now.
1: And what I said during the break was that it sounds, you know, from Ada's story as if that is a unique experience to her and Caroline building this community ahead of time. But I really feel like whatever community is around a grieving parent can rally, whether that's birth workers, midwives, doulas, work acquaintances, you know, they can rally around to take care of the practical needs so that the space can be left open for grief
2: what, what are some of those practical
0: needs? Right. And so like what I do as a bereavement doula is I try to just to either do it or bring in support from other birth workers to create meals, a meal train, a steady meal train, to give rides, places that they might need to, you know, to provide transportation to help with, I'm, I'm doing this project where I'm helping a family with communicating with their loved ones about how they want them to talk about their baby, mm-hmm. how and, and, and how it's a their baby is still their baby and it's an ongoing part of their life. And so this is their birthday. And this is, you know, so just like helping them communicate their needs to other people. So I think there's also the part where what you're doing is, is bringing them the support or giving the support one-on-one or helping them learn how to ask for the support from, from their community that's going to be part of their lives for, for once you leave.
1: So this bizarre thing happens when someone loses a baby, which is that everyone forgets that that parent is still postpartum. Yes. So I think that a really simple answer to your question is you take care of that person as you would take care of a postpartum person. So in the midwifery community, we're really good at taking care of postpartum people. We should continue to be good even if the baby's not there.
2: I'm glad you said that. I, honestly, that had never crossed my mind. Yeah, I have it in my notes to say that I'm so glad you said it because that is what happened for me. Like,
0: people were giving me herbs and giving me food and making me baths all the time, like all the exact same things that you do for someone postpartum. Mother warming is really important or birth and parent, parental warming and hot teas and hot, you know, all the same exact things that people do postpartum plus the addition of, of grief and support and just like holding that space. So, so for also a big part is financial. Like if there is, if people can bring in, it helps provide money so that they don't have to work if that's an option that can be really special. It was really powerful for
2: us. Well, I think it's powerful how you two are able to, you were able to stay so connected with each other and obviously communicate about what happened quite a bit. How do you think you've been able to do that in such a unique way?
1: (laughs) Uh I'm pointing to Ada because I'm saying, I think the reason is Ada. Like that's my response is that I think, you know, Ada and I had a a pre-existing friendship and professional relationship that both were incredible, but also I think her willingness to leave that door open and have those conversations with me and continue to include me in her life was a conscious decision, I feel. I don't know. You can correct me if that's wrong.
0: Right. And I'll (laughs) say this, which is that um, my loss... Um, Caroline and my loss of button was not the first, um, it's not the first loss I'd experienced. It was also not the first, um, traumatic experience that I had where I needed to call in support. You're not Um, talking about infant loss though, right? Oh no, I'm not talking about infant loss. I'm talking about, I had another serious accident and I had my best friend committed suicide, right? Like I had experienced great loss in my life and I knew how to ask for support and I had a community that Mm -hmm. had supported me. And so I had learned how to say, this is what I do and don't want in a way that I, I think is is not necessarily the norm, and so I think what I was able to say to Sarah things like, "Oh, when you come here and cry in front of me, I don't want to see it. Like, I don't I don't care about your pain right now," which is a hard thing to say to a friend because of course I care about Sarah's pain, but I couldn't right then. And um, she was able to hear that and walk away and like work on it, you know, or or figure out how to hide it or whatever. <laughs> um, But not hide it, because I also knew that she loved Button and that she was feeling for me, and I wanted that, but I just
2: couldn't, I couldn't face it right then. You couldn't support her. Yeah, I couldn't, exactly. At that time.
0: So I think that's a big piece of it, and also um, just just our constant dialogue about it, I think.
1: Well, I made a decision when Button died that I that I would always be willing to talk about Button whenever Ada wanted it. Like I consciously made that choice because I, kn- I knew the fear that came in to providers. So I made, I made this decision that like, okay, whenever Ada and Caroline wanna talk about their baby, I'm gonna sit there and talk about their baby. And I'm going to remember her birthdays and I'm going to say her name and I'm going to talk about all the beautiful art that's hanging on the walls that is in honor of her. So those were very conscious choices on my part. Um, which I think also helped, I don't know, I hope helped to keep the door open a little bit.
2: Can you talk about, you mentioned that fear that providers have. Can you talk about that a little bit And you know, your, your decision to kind of resist that fear?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, and my experience was within the midwifery community, that was very supportive of Ada and showed up in a big way. So I'm not, I don't want to be harshly critical But the large majority of advice that I got from the midwifery community was very inappropriate. So most of it was extremes of how are you going to protect yourself legally or you should take that emotional process to that family and work through your grief together because your grief is the same as their grief. So there was a lot of that, like extremes of advice that all felt really wrong to me and a lot of it felt fear-based. And I understand that that's also the case, like in the medical legal practice, you know, that that's often the advice that's given is have no further contact with that family because they might sue you or your institution. So I think providers being willing to drop that fear because although we might be individually concerned with continuing to practice or or what the medical community views midwifery as or whatever, it pales in comparison, like it is eclipsed by that family's loss. And so when you create a hierarchy of needs, I really feel like the midwife needs to recenter around that family and what their needs are.
2: Did you get your own support as well? I did. Yeah. And some of it was really
1: fantastic and some of it was not. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I just want to echo that what Sarah said, I see as midwifery 101,
2: right? Center your client, center your client, no matter what is going on. It is. And then, of course, you've had your own sort of traumatic experience as well, and that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's like that I mean, balance, right, of like yeah. centering your client while also getting your needs met.
1: Well, I think what's real, and we we know that, like, I know this from personal experience, but we also know it from a lot of study that's being done on birth provider burnout, is that you have to take care of yourself first, right? So you have to go and whatever work that is, whether that's, you know, going to therapy or going to support groups or being with your peers or you have to go and do your work and take care of yourself first or you can't center the client. And that's true through all of midwifery care.
0: Exactly. Which is the other piece of work that I do about just providing support to providers. Often to doulas just like, it's crucial that they get support and figure out how to like not put it on. Yeah, we I mean, we just said this, but not mm-hmm. put it on their, their clients. Mm-hmm. And I also just want to add this piece about um I think that it's I've yet to see a, a situation after a stillbirth where there's not a desire to blame someone. Basically, well my experience is that the impulse is to blame ourselves. And so you don't like how to where where else can I put that blame? Comes up. Like I tried really hard to blame Sarah. If I could, I I I would still, you know, but I um but I'm also able to like there were things that Sarah did that I didn't love, mostly postpartum, like postpartum and supporting me, they're, they're, now I see them as minor, but there were things that I didn't love, but I was able to differentiate between, I got really good clinical care, I know what happened, it wasn't Sarah. Sarah did an amazing job. And sure, there's these things that I didn't like. It took me a, it took me a while to be able to, to not just take that and, and think about it and be like, oh, I'm so mad at Sarah, she did this wrong thing, or uh, And I think that's really natural. I think mm-hmm. it's a really normal desire. And so I think that's a lot of where the fear, the um, health worker fear comes from. But I think there's lots of ways to work through that
2: without not communicating with the client or without. Um, well, that's such, a, that's such an enormous amount of self-blame. I can see it's like an overwhelming amount of self-blame that I can see how attractive it would be to want to aim that at someone other than yourself not have blame at all, which is a really kind of difficult concept, I think, in our culture.
0: Yeah, and I will say that I don't, of course, there are exceptions to this, but I don't feel, I feel like I've been able to, like, let that go for the most part, and I think, as I, I might have said already, but I think that's so much because of my connection to Button, the way in which I've learned to parent her, to continue to parent her while she, even while she's not here, and so I have this connection to her that I feel like is part of why I'm
2: okay, we have, we have communication, like she's part of my life and I don't feel. What do you mean by that? You've mentioned that a few times and I don't really know what that looks like. Can you, do you feel comfortable talking about that a little bit? I feel comfortable, but I don't know how. Um,
0: I, so I feel like Caroline and I have carved out ritual in our life that, that includes button. And some of that is like ritual, like on, on certain, at certain times we have ritual that includes her and that includes our living son. But but also, it's just this day-to-day. She's here. She's part of our life. We have, we have a photo of her on our altar. And like we, when people ask me, when people ask Caroline if, if, we have, if Simon is our only child, so if our living child is our only child, we're like, no, we have two children. One of them is not alive anymore. You know, we just like, she's part of our life. So that's a practical way to answer it. There's this other piece that I don't, I don't know how to talk about, which is just that um, her presence really exists for me. I think that's like a whole separate podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And it's powerful. And I do, I feel lucky that I I didn't, I didn't know that I would be able to have that. And I'm very thankful that I do.
1: Yeah. Button's presence is palpable around her family. Like there is no way that this family is going to let anyone in their lives forget that they have two children, um, which is really, really beautiful. And I have the privilege of spending a lot of time with Ada's younger baby. We were, you know, we were hanging out, he and I, and there's a picture of Button up, on my altar. And he said, you know, oh, Simon. And I was like, oh no, that's actually your sister, Button. So it's like, Button's integrated everywhere, which is, is so incredibly beautiful. And he's like, yeah, I like her.
0: Just to interrupt, Simon called every baby Simon. Yes. Any photo
2: he sees of a baby, he says Simon. I don't know why, but so, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. What was his birth like with the presence of Button? His birth was hard. <laughs> His birth was really hard for me. His, my
0: pregnancy with him was really difficult, right? All the things about that we could talk about for a long time. But Sarah was there. Sarah was my midwife. I had I had another midwife, but she didn't. Yeah, Sarah was my midwife. And I mean, it was great, right? When Simon was born, he actually wasn't breathing at first. So right, you can imagine Caroline and my, yeah. I mean, it just took, he just needed a quick mouth to mouth. um And he was fine and strong and powerful, but, but yeah, I don't know. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. Is that a good answer? <laughs> just button was so present, but it mm-hmm. took, a, it took a while for me to notice. Cause you know, it was really hard for me, but, Oh, she was just really present at that birth. And, um, and like, like a big sister, and just really there. So much of how I talk about button always like kind of takes me, takes me back because I, I never would have used such language or like thought of myself as someone who would talk about, I just know I sound really woo. And, and well, life is what it is, right? (laughs) It's a fact.
2: And she's really present. Mm Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you, you've learned a whole new way of being and speaking as a result of this. Yeah. I mean, because you're saying things that, like, they sound really unfamiliar to me, but, like, you've been somewhere that I've never been.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the reality of all loss. I just want to also say that I feel like I work a lot with death in general, not just infant loss, and I've experienced great loss in my life, and so I have, I've learned a lot of pieces of, I mean, I guess of all these things, it was like the series of learning how to connect with my family who is no longer living, but I also, I feel like I just learned so much and it, and it, yeah, I think the experience after loss is just, after infant loss, is so specific and it does just change you. And I think for me letting that be okay and just accepting that I'm a new person, I think it ha- it's true for
2: everyone. I think some people it can take, it just takes different times for us all to like to embrace that. I mean, what are some other things that, because you've supported other families in this, you know, how did, how might it look different for different people?
0: I think relationships change. I think your relationship to other people that you were close to, to your family, and also just to the world really changes. Like, there's this other, it's such an isolating experience. Having a stillbirth is such an isolating experience. And it's so, even if you're surrounded by like amazing community and, and you know, and support, it will just always be isolating. You will. I, I personally felt really cursed. I felt really like, how could this have happened to me? How could I how could I let this happen to my baby? You know, we're like physiological, physiologically like wired to take care of our babies. So when, when something happens to them and we, we can't control it, it's really like our nervous system can't handle it. So it's just so isolating that there's this real other. There's this real like feeling of like I'm different than everyone else in the world. Um, because no one else has experienced this, right? Because we never hear about stillbirth. We hear about it more like that's this thing that happens. But we don't know people yeah, who have stillbirths. It's just
2: like a word.
0: It's just a word. And I mean, I'm saying that as as a as a midwife, as a as a someone who had said, you know, I of course I knew about it like didactically, but I also didn't know about it or really believe it was a possibility in some way. So it's just so othering that that's just really alienating, and so you feel different than the whole world, and that can look a lot of different ways, and that can mean that a lot of people just really isolate themselves, or it can mean that you're having relationships that just aren't meaningful. And then there's this there's this reality that like so the reason that we don't know about stillbirth is also because people don't talk about it, right? Like, every eventually, once I share my story, most of the time, some, if someone is actually talking to me and is not just ignoring me, which is pretty common, you say, my baby died, and they literally just say, so, what is the weather like today, Yeah, you know? Um, I mean, literally, that happens on a regular basis. But if that doesn't happen and you're actually engaging about it, they will say, oh, I know somebody who knows somebody. You know,
2: like, actually it's just not talked about Mm -hmm.
0: because it's so isolating.
2: I totally had a memory as you were saying that I remember way before I got pregnant, I went in for, I went into a dentist appointment. And I remember the the hygienist who I really liked and, you know, had known for the years that I've been going there. And I asked her how she was doing and she said, I just lost my baby. And I said, what? And she said, she said, my baby just died at 38 weeks. I was 38 weeks. And I was like, what? Like, it was like, it was so bizarre. And I just remember thinking like, I don't, I don't even have like words. Like, I don't even know. I have no idea how to respond to that. Obviously she was, she's back at work. Like she was cleaning my teeth. And she had just lost a baby. I mean, like just lost a baby. It was almost like, okay, well, this pregnancy isn't continuing anymore. So you just go back to your life. And obviously she wasn't okay. I mean. So I think
1: there's some bigger cultural things to address with that because like according to the CDC's most recent data, if you count the stillbirths that happen between 20 and 40 weeks or 20 weeks of pregnancy and the end of pregnancy, it's 1% of all pregnancies which means if you know 100 people, you probably know someone who's out of stillbirth. And it's a much higher rate than things like SIDS, which our culture likes to talk about a lot, you know, like safe sleep and such. So I think that there's there's just something so unsettling for people to talk about a baby dying in the end of pregnancy that we just blank out and avoid the topic altogether because it's really not as rare as you think.
0: And that story that you told is interesting because that's the thing is that like our culture doesn't allow for it, right? You go back to work, you keep living. And so part of me wants to encourage parents to really like go there and to feel their grief and to like, you know, to, to like connect to their baby. And also it's not an option for, for most people mm-hmm. because you can't, you have to get back to work and you can't think about it. So you do have to shove those memories away until someday maybe you'll have a, ch- a chance to or whatever, you know, so there's just, it's a real cultural thing our cultural problem, which I again, this is what I was trying to say earlier, actually, is it's connected. Like this is true for all grief. This is always true. We're not supposed to talk about dead people yeah. and to focus on it and to, to you know, it's like you, the, the idea that healing from grief is linear, is just so disturbing. And we, we, I don't believe that we do heal. I believe that things change or for me, I believe I integrated my loss into my, into my life in a way that works for me. But that being said, with, with infant loss, it's just a different thing. It's like you're postpartum, but you have to just, pretend like you're not and get back to work and like and so then the other piece of that story is that for me that's what happened like in the beginning people would ask me how I was and i would be like I lost my baby you know like I wanted to talk about it because I mean that's trauma right like this narrative of like I need to tell the story I need to tell the story so either that's happening or the way that you're dealing with it that you can't talk about it and that nobody wants to hear it even your closest people often don't want to hear it so you just don't talk about it you just so many people just silence it and never, ever tell the stories. Many people, I meet people who are like, oh yeah, I remember one time I heard that my grandmother lost a baby, but she never talked about it before. You know, it's just like,
2: I think people don't talk about it their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the typical narrative. Yeah. Like it happened, but nobody talks about it. And I think like, that we lost to, a baby, my grandmother yeah. lost a baby and she never talks about it. Right. And so yeah. I just think that desire to talk about it all the time is
0: like the first impulse. But then when you can't do that, it's just like, okay.
2: It's not, you know, it's not a real part of my life. Yeah, and then you're just holding your trauma inside your body. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, we're just about out of time. Is there anything you wanna say that we haven't touched on?
1: I would really like it if Ada would talk about the services that she's developing for providers. We shouldn't, as providers, look to our clients to teach us, but here we have someone who's experienced loss and is a midwife. And is integrating that into this work that's pretty amazing. So I think there's something really valuable in those services. Because I know, Kristen, you had wanted to ask me about what midwives should know and should do. Um, and I think we talked about a lot of that, but really, we need more resources.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Ada, what are you working on that you can share? I don't think I'm the only person
0: doing this work that has, that has lost a baby, which I know you didn't say that, Sarah, but I just want to say there are other other people, but I, um, so I support bereaved parents, like I do one-on-one support after loss at any point, you know, at any point after loss, and that looks so different depending on the person's needs. Sometimes, often, it's just a telephone conversation to know that there are other bereaved parents out there, or a meeting one-on-one to just share those experiences. Um, I also facilitate a support group. I help people um, with creating creating ritual and ceremony after loss. And again, that can be anywhere, you know, some people don't do that for 20 years. And so wherever, whatever that looks like. Um, but I also do provider support. So provider one-on-one provider consults and support, as well as helping, helping with education in a larger setting or helping people implement systems to, their, to provide better support. Um, and I can do this work via, like I do a lot of it in person, but I can also do it on the phone or on Skype.
2: Yeah, that's how we met. Oh, right. Originally, yeah.
0: yeah. So um, I've been surprised that it's actually really useful, even just to talk on the phone, because
2: I think the resources just aren't there. And even as just a first contact, for somebody who's just like, I don't know what to do or where to go, I think it'd be really helpful to talk to somebody who has an idea about that. Right, and so often it's like, it's that it's like
0: providing the resources or helping them figure out where they can look or, yeah or how to implement systems or sometimes to talk about what they're already doing and be like, is this, is this the right thing or what else should I do? And sometimes people get really stuck and, um, and scared, right? Like scared of how to do, say the right thing or do the right thing. So sometimes it's just really like basic, basic support that people need about like whether or not it's okay to say this thing or
2: whatever, whether or not they should ask the baby's name or, you know, whatever. So yeah. I was going to, I was going to mention that because I think that came up prior to our conversation today was about your baby's name, you know, whether it was appropriate to ask.
0: Yeah. So I tell people the the three main things that I would say when someone tells you that they lost their baby is, I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> and I mean, so much so that I say, like, pra- have that line and practice it, figure out how to say it without looking, without making like a puppy dog face or like being like, oh, cause people often be like, Oh, just, you know, like really just And no shame on people just, like, figure out how to say, I am sorry for your loss. And if you're having a a bigger conversation, say, did your baby have a name? Because not everyone's baby did have a name. And if they did, they will probably want to share it. And even if they didn't, like, sometimes people feel a little, like, sad that they didn't have a name. But still, they will usually want to process that. They will usually want to be like, oh you know, we hadn't yet come with a name and we feel bad about that. And often in that process, they will actually say, oh, well, actually we did call the baby this. And that can be this like really powerful moment for people to be like, oh, my baby does have a name. So that's, I've never, I've not yet asked anybody that question and seen it go poorly. And then the third thing is just not to be scared of people to figure out how to just, just, it's okay. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody ever says the right thing about anything. And and that's okay. (laughs) Like death is an important, big life experience that we all should get through in community.
2: well thank you thank you thank you Kristen this has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci if you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else you can email me at birthallowedradio at gmail.com thanks for being here with us we'll be back every other Sunday at 1pm on WLXU